Welcome to all of you. Welcome back. I feel like you've been gone, but I'm back now, so it's okay. If you are new to Hope Rock Church or you're a guest here, super excited that you guys chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, if you have been coming here for the last few weeks and you have no idea who I am, uh, let me just tell you, my name is Marco. I have the awesome privilege of being a part of this amazing team here at this church. We have been away in South Africa, myself, Kat, and our kids. It's been three weeks for me of just an amazing time of reconnecting with family, friends, and just you know, getting a chance to be with the people that sent us here to America, which is really, really awesome for us. We got to preach while we were there. I uh, got to preach at Cornerstone. We got to you know, just invest into people's lives. We got to share testimonies about what God has done in this church and what he continues to do. We got to meet with all the elders, and it was just a really sweet time of us being able to deposit something in them when they so faithfully sent us out. And so I want to thank you guys for that opportunity. I do want to send all of their love, their prayers, their wishes, the Hope Rock. I mean, the, the Cornerstone Eldership team is praying for this church. They love this church. It's on their heart. And what really blew, my, blew me away while I was there was just the amount of encouraging words that they had for this local church. I mean, it was just it was mind-blowing. Catherine and I sat there, and we thought, well, how is it that we can leave there so blessed and so deposited? In. They just have so much to deposit into us, and they continue to do that from afar. So I want you to know that the nations are thinking of us, and that's a good thing. I also want to say this, that while Kat and the kids are still in South Africa, they'll be back this week, Thursday. My day's all messed up. Uh, I speak for us as a family when I say this. As much as we had a great time, and as much as we loved being there, and as much as I loved seeing my family, because I really did, we truly and honestly missed this church. We missed you guys. We missed every single one of you. Uh, there wasn't a moment that went by when we weren't thinking about you. I'd be lying if I said I prayed for you at every moment. I didn't. Uh, I don't want to do that from the pulpit. But honestly, we missed you guys. I'm so grateful to be back. And even though I'm struggling quite a lot with jet lag at the moment, uh, I'm super excited to be here with you today, which is a good thing, right? Excitement is good. I might be confused, but excitement is good, right? If you can't get, like, logic from me today, the one thing you have to be able to know is that I'm super excited to be here. <laughs> you know, so that's a good thing. If I do start staring off into the distance, and I'm not saying anything, I told Derek he's going to come and slap me on the back, and I should get back to it. Just two quick announcements. Well, maybe not two, a few. This week is a big week for us in this church. Tonight, we start off with our encounter night, which is the first time we're hosting it. Uh, we are starting off these youth encounter nights once a month where we're going to host youth from our city. Not just our youth, but any youth. Anyone that's a middle school kid to a high school kid is welcome to come here and just join us. We're trusting that God's going to do a big thing with the next generation. We know that for us to have a security into the future that God has for us, we have to be building into the generation to come. And so if your kids are in our church and they're not signed up yet, please make sure they don't have to sign up, but just make sure they come. But what's more, if you know of other kids that are high schoolers or middle schoolers that you feel could benefit from this, whether they are believers or not, invite them along to It's going to be a really, really awesome night. I'm excited about it, and, I expect, and I, I'm expecting that God will move. Then this week is obviously our Easter week. Um, you know, Jeremy reminded me this morning that it's Palm Sunday today. Uh, to be honest, I felt like I dealt with Palm Sunday weeks ago, which I did. But I was like, wow, it's actually only Palm Sunday today. But this week, Friday, is Good Friday. We have our Good Friday service, uh, which is... A really sweet time for us just to celebrate our King and what He did for us on the cross. So if you want to come to that, that'll happen on Friday night. And then right after that, Mark and the Fight Club guys are going to be running uh, an all-night prayer meeting. So that's going to happen from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. It's going to sort of feed off the momentum of the men's retreat, which I'm really sad I missed. I heard it was awesome, although I did get told it was better because I wasn't there. So, I mean, hey, you know, I did you guys a favor. Uh, but it's going to be a really awesome time. So if you are a man and you want to pray, then come this Friday and pray the whole night. It's going to be really good. Then, of course, on Sunday is Easter, right? I mean, I can't believe it. Another Easter, just like that. 
And I want to ask you, if, you've invited, if you haven't invited somebody to come to Easter yet, please make sure you invite someone. This is a great opportunity for us to share the gospel. There are very few moments in the calendar year where nominal and or you know, believers that are on the outskirts, not really sure, come to church. This is one of those moments. And so if we can provide an environment for them to come where we can preach the gospel, what a powerful thing. And it doesn't even have to be nominal believers. If you know unbelievers that haven't heard the gospel before, bring them. Because one thing you can be sure of, we will preach the gospel on Sunday. And so please invite people. There are those invitations out there, right, Ashley? So grab some of them and just get as many people here as you can at our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. I also just want to quickly take this opportunity, since I've been gone for a while, just to honor some people. I want to, first of all, honor the deacons and the elders in our church just for, you know, doing such an amazing job while we're away. I want to honor Tim, Charlie, as well as Mark for preparing so well over the last few weeks, preaching and delivering God's word. You guys are awesome. I want to thank the staff, the volunteers, and everybody that makes this church Hope Rock Church. This church is not about one individual. It's about the collective of us coming to worship our King. And so there is no one gifting here that is better than any other gifting. And I'm just so blown away when I look at the intentionality and just the front-footedness of making Jesus the only thing that we celebrate in this church. So thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity for giving us the time to go away. It was really, really needed, and we really feel blessed from it. Uh, thank you very much, Jeremy. Now that I've got the thanks out the way, I just, uh, I'm not going to get into anything crazy yet, but I know that while I was away, you know, some people you know, took some liberties. You know, they, 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 I mean, they revealed some of my most private pictures, right, uh, Charlie and Tim. I'm not, look, don't, don't, Charlie, don't be looking on the screen. Don't be looking. Don't worry about it. All I'm saying is that, yes, those pictures were true. I ride hippos and sleep with lions and do all of that cool stuff. In fact, I wore my South African shoes today. They're called Feldskun, which means bush shoes. That's actually from a hippo. Um, but I just want those guys that took advantage of my being out of here just to understand that revenge is sweet. And so you better just sleep with your eyes open. I'm very jet-lagged, so I'm not going to get it back today because it really wouldn't be great. But I don't know when it could be. It might be next week, Charlie. It could be the week after. You never know. All I'm saying is you're on notice, and it's going to be awesome. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, jokes aside, all of that out the way. I do have a word for this church. Um, not the preach, that's going to come, but I have a word for this church. Often when I go away, God speaks to me. Uh, in fact, oh, that sounds terrible. God speaks to me all the time, okay? But particularly when I go away and I'm isolated and I'm by myself in the African wilderness or at the beach or somewhere else, I have sweet times with the Lord. And the Lord gave me a word that I feel like I'm compelled to share with you this morning before we do anything else. So we all know that this year started off with uh, a word from the Lord, and he said in Joshua chapter 3 that where we're going, we've never been before, right? And that was the sort of the theme for the year. We're headed into a new direction. We're going into a new inheritance. Where we've gone, we've never been before. Great word. And that word still applies. And I believe what the Lord deposited in me while I was away is not uh, a superseding word. It's in, in addition to this word. In fact, I believe the word that the Lord wants to give us today complements this word so well. And it in, it's an encouragement, and, and you'll see it. So just to give you a bit of context, this word comes from the book of Exodus, um, where we are in this passage of scripture that I'm about to read, or at least this verse, the nation of Israel has been released from Egypt. They've been sent off. Pharaoh has finally said, after all the plagues, you can go. You guys are like, you guys are killing us, literally. You guys need to get out of here. And so the nation of Israel has left Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. And where we pick up the text, they literally are standing with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's advancing army behind them. And the verse says this in verse 21 of Exodus 13. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. We all know this, right? The pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. 
we all have heard this since we went to Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school. But there's something that I never actually really paid attention to in this verse that I felt like the Lord just, man, he just dropped it in my heart. And that is the end of this verse. It says that they might travel by day and by night. And the word that I have for us is I feel like the Lord wants to remind us that going where we've never been before, going into a new direction, going into a new inheritance, stepping out into the unknown, the uncomfortable unknown, I want to be, want to be honest with you, the unknown is never comfortable, at least for me. Walking into the new that God has for us requires a few things. The first thing is obviously what we know from Joshua 3. The first thing is we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. We can't go where we haven't been before if we're not following Jesus. If we're following man, we're in trouble. If we're following the systems of this world, we're in trouble. If we're following anything but Jesus, we're in trouble. So yes, we've got to follow Jesus. That's the fire and that's the cloud. We know that. It's great. The second thing I felt like the Lord was reminding me is that for us to walk into the new that we have, we have to be prepared to leave some things behind. The nation of Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years. They'd built a life there. They'd built families there. They had deposited, literally deposited themselves in that land. But God required that they leave some things behind. Yes, God blessed them on the way out. But I believe that for us to move into the season that God's got for us, we have to be a people that are prepared to leave some things behind. So what are those things that we're going to leave behind? What, what could they be? They could be the dreams and visions that we have that are not from the spirit, but from our flesh. What are the things that we're holding on to, either as individuals or as a church, that are not from God, but they're built out of our own selfish desires. Maybe we need to leave those things behind. Maybe they're the comfortable routines, the schedules, the orders of service that we've created that we've become so used to. Maybe we need to leave some of those things behind. Because after all, maybe God wants to do a new thing. And I'm not saying it's any one of these things. I'm giving us examples. Maybe it's the unhealthy habits or mindsets that we've allowed to elevate themselves into positions that they shouldn't be in. Maybe it's the perspective. Maybe it's uh, the idols in our lives that we've created. Idols out of good things that we've turned into bad things. Maybe we need to leave some of those things behind. I'm not sure what it is. I'm going to ask you to be praying into these things about what do we need to leave behind before we go forward. But the third thing that I really felt was the crux of this word was that the Lord wants us to understand that if we are a people of destiny, if we are a people of inheritance, if we are a people that are walking into the bigness that God has got for us, what God had for the nation of Israel was a big dream. It wasn't a small dream. It wasn't a minuscule dream. It, minuscule dream. it was a big dream. God wants us to know that we have to be prepared to travel both in the daytime and in the nighttime. I think, well, what does that even mean? Well, the daytime represents those seasons in our lives where we feel like we've got momentum, where things are going well, where we feel like, you know, time is on our side. Things are producing fruit wherever we look. More people are coming into the kingdom. Things are going well. And guess what happens in the daytime? We can see clearly where we need to go. Daytime is amazing because the future can often be seen from a distance. And so God wants us to leverage the daytime season. He wants us to travel, but he also wants us to be a people who are prepared to travel at night. The nighttime represents those challenging seasons in our lives. The seasons where all of a sudden momentum seems to be at an all-time low, where every corner we turn, it seems like there is another obstacle, another barrier, something that's trying to prevent us from going forward, where all we can see literally is the next step in front of us. Those are the moments that I believe God wants us to travel. And we love the daytime. I love the daytime. Don't get me wrong, I love the daytime. I want to be a daytime follower and walker all my life. But God said to me, you haven't been called to walk in the day. You've been called to walk in the night too. And often when the night comes, we hold up our hands and we say, I'm done. I can't do this anymore, Lord. It's too hard. No, I think God's saying to us that it's in the nighttime 
that the foundations and the roots and the, 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 the fundamental strength that we need for the daytime is built. We can't have the day without the night. I don't know if that sounds like I'm encouraging you, but what I want to say to you is this. For us as a local church, for you as individuals in this local church, whether this is the church you stay in for years or whether God's got something else for you, for you to reach the full potential of your destiny, we have to persevere in the easy times and we have to persevere, more importantly, in the difficult times. Seasons are normal. Good times, bad times, sowing and reaping. It's throughout Scripture we see this principle. And I just feel like there's a huge encouragement for us. So if you are literally right now in the darkest night that you've ever been in, I want you to know that God's going to do something in it. He provided a pillar of fire at night for us to follow. And so no matter how dark and how desperate things may seem or how difficult things may be right now, we have Jesus. And that's all we know. And that's all we need to know. Because he'll take us where we need to go. And so I hope you're encouraged with that. I know I certainly was. Um, yeah, so bless you guys. I'm going to pray, and then we can get on with the actual preach. Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege of being able to preach your word. Thank you for every single person that is present here, either online or here in person. And I just pray, Lord, that you would do what you need to do in our hearts today. I feel like there is a specific thing that you want to challenge us on this morning. And when I say challenge, it's actually more of a release than anything else. But I pray that you'd prepare our hearts to hear what it is that you want to say. And I pray that you'd give me the wisdom and the understanding to be able to deliver your word in the best possible way. Holy Spirit, take control. Do what you need to do. And let the soil that we sort of receive these seeds on be fertile soil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you see, I only started my clock after the word, right? That's, uh, that's the strategy I learned. Because Tim gives me a hard time if I preach too long. It's just not me, anyway. Okay. So we're in the Easter series here at Hope Rock Church. Uh, I've only been here for one of them. I've seen the other, I caught up on the others online. I delivered the first one. Uh, and this is a series that's been looking at the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. Literally his last calendar week before the resurrection. Not his last, last week because he was glorified. I mean, after he was resurrected, he did a bunch of stuff. But it's that week leading up to the resurrection that we've been looking at. And what this week has done, apart from teaching us many things, there's a whole bunch of information and a whole bunch of teaching that comes out of the last week of Jesus' life. What it's done is started to reveal certain facets of who Jesus is to us. A lot of these we know, but it's a reinforcement. The first week, we looked at Jesus as our humble Savior. He's a humble Savior, right? He comes riding on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem on a donkey. And I asked us the question, who is Jesus to us? You see, we can often want to create Jesus in our own image, the God that we want, and we want him to be. And so we start to put our own things on Jesus. Or is he the God that the Bible says he is? The nation of Israel wanted a very specific type of Messiah. And because they were so specific, they missed the son of the living God. Then on the Monday after that Sunday, which is actually not the, you know what I'm saying, the Monday in the, in the calendar week we're looking at, we looked at the facet of Jesus that he's a righteous savior. Charlie did a great job. God is a God of righteousness. Yes, he loves us, but he's a God of righteousness. He's not going to stand for people profiting from his kingdom. He turns over tables when people do that. He doesn't like it. And that was a great message, Charlie. Just, I mean, it was really, really powerful. But we have to remember that facet of Jesus. He's a righteous Savior. Then we looked at, on Tuesday, a Savior who knows our hearts. And Mark did a great job looking at the parables of Jesus, various parables. Are our hearts ready to receive Jesus? Even though he knows our heart, we are required to have a heart response to Christ. Are we going to be a foolish version or are we going to be a wise version? Are we going to take the talents and the gifts that God has deposited in us? And are we going to do something with them? Or are we just going to sit with them idly by? And then this past weekend, Tim did an all right job 
I'm just kidding. It was a great job, Tim. We looked at a Savior who honors our worship. And it really was such an important message for me. And I'll tell you why. You know, this beautiful picture of Jesus being anointed by Mary of Bethany with this nod and this fragrance so that he can be buried ultimately. is such a powerful picture of worship. Pouring out something that is of, of huge value to an individual on somebody that we love and we, we care for. But Tim asked a question. Is Jesus the sole object of our worship? Is he the object of our worship or is it something else? And there's this beautiful picture that Tim illustrated for us of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. You know, this is probably one of the weaker points in my life is that I'm often all about the work of the Lord. And in fact, it's an easy default position for me to be in. I'm happy to do the work of the Lord. But am I in love with the Lord of the work? Sitting at Jesus' feet, I believe for us in the season that we're in as a church and the destiny that God's got for us is probably the most important place where we can be right now. And God's been challenging me with that. I've got personal words in South Africa that Jesus wants me at his feet. So I want to encourage us. Jesus, Jesus wants us at his feet because he loves us and we have to worship him. We have to make him the center of everything. This morning, we're going to continue. And it's the Thursday now before the resurrection. It's the start of the Jewish festival of Passover, Pesach. And there are many events between this Thursday that we're going to look at now in Jesus' life and the Friday morning. There's actually a bunch of stuff that happens. So much that we could teach on. I mean, for example, we could have spoken about today on the podcast. Bless you, Stacey. Bless you. Hallelujah. <laughs> we could have spoken about today about the Passover, right? And the actual Passover supper, the Pesach supper. We could have looked at Jesus as the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. That he is the sin. That he, he took the sins of the world on his shoulder. That he is, you know, the living God who died for his people. That's a great lesson. Or we could have gone and looked at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a lot to learn there. Remember that prayer? Jesus is praying, the disciples are sleeping, that one. When Jesus is sweating blood, we could have learned from that how even in the darkest, most desperate moments of our lives, where should we be on our knees in prayer? We could have taught on that. Or we could have looked at Jesus' ambush, ultimately his arrest, and then the beatings and the ridicule that followed that in the early hours of the morning. And what that would have taught us was Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If there was one person on this earth who deserved retribution, it was Jesus Christ. If there was one person in this world that could have commanded the angels of the armies of the Lord to destroy his accusers, it was Jesus Christ. Yet what we see Jesus react in the garden is completely unnatural. The natural man wants to react. Jesus is meek. Something that I think we can learn from. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is there's so much that we could learn from just in those few hours from the evening to the morning. But I felt like the Lord was like, I don't want you to teach on any of that. So I don't know what I'm teaching about today. And no, I'm kidding. I really did feel like the Lord was like, I don't want you to go there. And instead, I want you to cover something else. And so let me position why I feel like God wants me to teach on this. And this is something that the Lord laid on my heart this week. You see, I believe that many of us in this room today, maybe I'll ask the question just now, but have at some point in their life, or maybe you are currently feeling like you're a little bit unworthy. I just have a sense that we're struggling with this issue of unworthiness. And the reason we feel unworthy is because we've been living in a place where we feel like we've let God down. Sometimes we feel like we've let people down. It's this place of disappointment. We're living in this disappointed place. Let me just ask, I mean, how many people here in your life have ever felt that you've let God down? I mean, I, I mean it's pretty much everyone in this room feels at some point in their life they've let God down. 
Well, what if I told you that that's exactly where the enemy wants you to live? The enemy wants you to live in a place of feeling like that you are nothing more than a disappointment. And I'll tell you why he does this. He wants us in that place because he wants to steal something from us. He wants to rob us of something. John 10.10, Jesus says this. He says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It's interesting how Satan is referred to as a thief. His job is to take things from us, steal things from us. The things that Satan wants to take from us are the very things that God wants to give to us. Over the past few months, maybe more so than I have ever experienced before in my life, I have had the unfortunate privilege of witnessing so many aborted ministries, so many aborted dreams, so many aborted callings, so many aborted destinies. And I use the word, the word aborted on purpose because this is not a failure. It's I've given up. And we've given up because we've allowed the enemy to tell us we're not good enough. That God can't use us anymore. But you know what Jesus says? He says that while the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, he came to give us life. And to give us life in abundance. Not just have life, but live an abundant life. And so no matter what we're feeling, no matter how much you've messed up in your life, no matter how much has been done to you or maybe you've done to somebody else, no matter how much you've let God down, I want to tell you this morning that we are not defined by our sin. We're not defined by our past or current messes. We are defined by Jesus. We are defined by what he did for us. We are defined by who Jesus says we are. When I read my Bible, Jesus tells me I'm loved. He tells me I'm saved. He tells me I've been redeemed, that I've been bought with a price. He tells me that I'm a person that hasn't just been created on purpose, but created for a purpose. And so for all of us this morning who feel unworthy, I want us to just help overcome this. I want us to start dreaming again. I want us to start believing for the impossible. I want us to start grabbing hold of the things that we've let go of in our lives. I want to do that by sharing about two disciples. We all know these stories. These are not new. This is not a revelation I'm giving you this morning. I want to talk about Judas and I want to talk about Peter. Both of whom equally messed up. For real. Like they done messed up those two. That's how Ash would have said it. But what's important is not about their mess. And we're going to talk about their mess. We're going to talk about what they did. But what's important is how they choose to respond. You see, both of them messed up, but both of them also respond in very different ways. One is a good response, and one is a bad response. And I feel like this morning, God wants to give us the tools that we need to make the correct response. Matthew 26, if you turn there with, with me in your Bibles, we're going to look at Judas first. Just where, where this is all happening in terms of the text, Jesus has just been anointed by Mary in Bethany. So that's where it's happening. It's actually not the Thursday I'm I'm stealing a day from Tim, half a day. But Jesus has just been anointed by, by Mary. He's smelling the best he smelt on this earth. It says this in verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So whatever transpired between Jesus being blessed with a whole bunch of really expensive perfume and now... What's clear is Judas is mad. 
Now, what we do infer from the text and what we see in the Bible, and many commentators will agree with us, is that Judas had been for some time dipping his hands into the till. He'd been skimming off the top. And so when he realizes that this really expensive perfume could have been sold, but wasn't sold, instead was wasted according to him, he gets really mad. He's mad now because he can't get the money. And so because he can't get the money, because he can't satiate his own greed, he goes and sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I want to say this just as an aside. We look at Judas, we think, well, how could he do that? Let me tell you something. The enemy is not stupid. He's a fool. He's defeated, but he's not stupid. He knows just what buttons to push in our lives. See, we think that Judas was this terrible person. Judas struggled with issues of finance. For him, greed and money was what mattered to him. What is it for us? For some people, it's sex. For others, it's drugs. For others, it's their own insecurities. Whatever that button is, believe me, Satan will come and push it. And later on in the text, we see this. This is now much later in the text. We're now on the Thursday. Matthew 26, verse 47. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane when this happens. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. They needed somebody to direct them to Jesus. They couldn't find Jesus. They didn't know how to get him. And so Judas is that guy. Now verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss, the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said this, greetings, rabbi. Interesting word there. That word rabbi means teacher, learned one, somebody that I can study from, somebody that can teach me things. But it speaks to a condition of Judas's heart. And this is not the point of the preacher this morning, but let me say this. If we do not see Jesus for who he is, if we see Jesus as a teacher, a religious construct, the person that you know, managed to you know, just give his life so we could avoid hell, or maybe we see him just as a convenient solution to hell, let me tell you, betraying him becomes quite easy. Now, I'm not saying it's not possible to betray him if you love him. We do it all the time, and I'll tell you about that a little bit later on. But if you don't see Jesus as Lord and Savior, betraying him is very easy. For Judas, he never saw Jesus as his Savior. He knew him as a teacher. And he kissed him. And verse 50 says this, Jesus said to him, friend. He doesn't say enemy. He doesn't say acquaintance. He doesn't say that guy that's been following me for three years. I don't know what you're doing here. He says to Judas, friend, do what you have come to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Betrayal is a real thing, friends. I don't know yeah, if anyone ever feels, has ever felt betrayed. Have you felt betrayed? Did anyone felt betrayed? Maybe I'm the only one. I felt betrayed in my life. You know, the thing with betrayal is it can only happen to us by people that we care about. I mean, enemies don't betray you, right? I mean, you expect them to do that. I mean, we shouldn't have enemies, by the way. You must pray for them, just so you know. But people that we don't care about can't betray us, right? It's like we expect people that are against us to do crazy things to us. What we don't expect is the people in our lives that are closest to us, our family, our friends, people that we trust, to turn their backs on us. And it's exactly what happens here in this case. We often forget that Judas was handpicked, selected by Jesus. Jesus wasn't an accident. He wasn't just some guy that was walking along one day and Jesus was like, I need a 12th. Will you be that guy? No, he handpicked Judas. Jesus picked Judas. Judas was one of the first 12 founding members of the Christian church. What's more, Judas was Jesus' friend. He says to him, friend. 
He walked with him. He prayed with him. He spoke with him. He shared things with Jesus. I'm assuming this, but I believe it. Jesus was a relational person. They, they experienced moments together. But now Judas betrays him. He turns his back on him, and it hurts. Sometimes I think we can fool ourselves into believing that Judas had no choice. You know, if you read the Luke account of what happens to Judas, it says that it's at the Last Supper and Satan enters into Judas. Sometimes we can take that for meaning that you know, Judas was just there eating cheese and bread and all of a sudden, boom, the devil's in him and he becomes this robot and now he's going to betray everyone. No, Satan can't do that and he doesn't do that. Yes, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, but Judas had a choice. Judas could have made different decisions. Judas chose his love for money, his greed for cash over his love and his faithfulness towards Jesus Christ. That's the fundamental problem. And before we too harden Judas, I want to tell you that all of us in this room are capable of betraying Jesus too. If you think about it in the context here, the context of the betrayal is Judas turning his back on his Savior. I know in my life that I've turned my back on my Savior, and I'll tell you how I do that. I do that every single time I choose something other than Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to help us understand that Judas was a human being. He was capable of sin, and he sinned, and he made a big mess. What's key here is how he's going to respond. So in 27, verse 3, it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Judas changed his mind. When he saw what was going to happen to Jesus, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Judas gets the revelation that something's gone wrong. You see, here's the deal. As much as Judas loved money, he was not a murderer. He never thought that Jesus would go to the cross. Judas wasn't planning this from day one. Oh, I'm going to betray him. He's going to get crucified. It's going to be awesome. He never expected anything like that. He thought they'd arrest him, throw him in jail, maybe give him a couple of beatings. He never knew that he would be condemned to death. And so he tries to reverse all of this. He's like, no, I don't want this to happen. This is not who I am. But guess what? It's too late. Matthew 27, verse 4, they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, here's Judas's response. He departed and he went and he hung himself. Judas responds to his sin by killing himself. Hmm. That's a de there's a definition for that. It's called remorse. Remorse is when we feel bad. It's when we allow our bad feelings that are triggered from this emotional response to lead us to places of guilt. We start to feel guilty for what we've done. And you know what guilt does? Guilt leads to shame. You know what shame does? It causes us to run away from Jesus. Shame doesn't bring us closer to God. Shame doesn't want us, no, it doesn't want to make us go to God. It makes us want to move away from him, to withdraw from him. In the case of Judas, we see what the net result of remorse is. It's death. And this is something that I'm very familiar with. You know, when I was a youngster, a young adult, a child, and a young teenager and a young adult, I was a reprehensible human being made really bad decisions, took a lot of drugs, and hurt a lot of people in the process. And every single time I'd hurt my mother or my father or I'd steal from them or hurt somebody, you know what I'd do is I'd start to feel guilty. I'd start to feel ashamed of what I'd done. And you know what that shame did? It led me to three suicide attempts, one of which I actually managed to get my heart to stop, and they resuscitated me. Shame leads to death, friends. Shame leads to the abandonment of your calling forever. 
Not for a season, forever. Just to be clear, this is not the correct response. So let's look at Peter. Matthew 26, verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, and they went to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So it's late Thursday night. They've just had a great meal. The last supper's happened. They've finished off the Pesach dinner with the hymn. They've glorified God. They're walking to the Mount of Olives. Why are they going there? Because Jesus knows that tomorrow he's going to die, and he needs to spend time with his father in prayer. The same night that the disciples were sleeping, Jesus was busy bleeding from his sweat glands. But he predicts that he's about to be abandoned. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy that comes from Zechariah 13. And in Zechariah 13, it says that the sword of the Lord, the sword of the Father, will be brought against the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter, and one-third of the sheep will come back to God. Speaking about this simple fact, Jesus would have to die so that the sheep could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That's the fulfillment. Jesus is the Passover sacrifice. But here's the deal. Jesus not only knows that he's about to die, he not only knows that he's going to be crucified, but what he knows is he's going to be alone when he does it. He's dealing with loneliness at this point. And if feeling betrayed is one way the enemy gets us to, you get all messed up and stuck, let me tell you another way the enemy messes us up is making us believe that we are lonely all the time. You know, the enemy wants us to be isolated. He wants us to be alone. He wants us to feel like there's no one and nothing that understands us. He wants us to know that we can't go to anyone and talk. But here's an encouragement. If you feel lonely this morning, Jesus knew what it felt to be lonely. But guess what? Even in his loneliness, he went to the cross. And the Bible tells me that Christ in me is the hope of glory. So that means no matter how lonely you feel, you can overcome it. And you are not lonely because Jesus is with you. And there are a bunch of people ready to support you. We are fooled by the enemy to believe nobody cares. Peter answered him in verse 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What Peter's saying is, yeah, Jesus, I get it. I get it. Like, I mean, when I look at these disciples, you're right. These guys, they're not cool. I can believe they're going to fall away, especially those two zealots. You've got a zealot here. You've got this guy. You've got John, who you love dearly, but he's going to just abandon you. But not me, Lord. You know, Peter's he's always so confident. Not me, Lord. Truly, this very night, before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times, Jesus says. And Peter says to him, even if I must die with you, I will go to the cross with you. He didn't know he was going to the cross, but he's like, I will die with you, but I will not deny you. What's interesting is all the disciples said the same thing. All of them. All of them, maybe not as just crazy as Peter, but they all said, no, we're not going to deny you. Don't be like that, Lord. It's not going to be like that. Peter always put his foot in it. You remember when he told Jesus, no, you're not going to die. I won't let that happen. He was like, what? Get behind me, Satan. Peter was like, this, he just said crazy stuff. He's just, just clearly, I think Peter was South African. Uh, has to be. He has to be South African. He persists. He's not going to abandon Jesus. Even though Jesus says, you're not going to just abandon me. You're going to deny me three times. So let's see what happens. Verse 69. And a servant girl came up to him. This is now after the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has been betrayed. Judas has kissed him. He's been arrested. He's now gone to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Peter is standing in the courtyard outside of the temple. He's in earshot of what's going on. He can hear what's happening. They're accusing Jesus. They're belittling Jesus. They're spitting on Jesus. They're smacking Jesus. And this young girl comes to him and says, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. And Peter says, No ways. He denied it before them all. I wasn't. That's not me. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant called 
girl saw him and he said to the and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it. This time he denied it with an oath, which is a sin. He swore an oath. It's not me, which is a sin. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are two, you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. People know I'm South African. Right? I mean, I know you thought I was from West Texas. I'm not. Surprise, I'm from South Africa. They're like, Peter, you sound like you're South African. You must be one of those people. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. So not only does he swear, he wants to, no, I swear if I'm, if I'm lying, then God will strike me dead. That's what he's saying, basically. You know, like, you know, I swear on my life that I didn't say this. Thank God, God doesn't hold us accountable for those things because I've said that so many times in my life when I've been wrong. Anyway. I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. This is Peter's moment. For Judas, it was, oh my gosh, look what's happening. They're going to kill him. I don't want this to happen. For Peter, it's the cock crowing and he's like, oh my gosh. Everything that Jesus said I would do, I have done. So much for being willing to die for Christ. Now again, I want to be clear. Let's not be too hard on Peter either. All the disciples abandoned Jesus that night. Every single one of them, even John, the disciple whom he loved the most. All of them abandoned Jesus. And honestly, I have abandoned Jesus in my life too. You think, but isn't denying Jesus an unforgivable sin? Well, let me tell you. Every single time I've been in a crowd of people and I'm ashamed of sharing the fact that I'm a believer because I'm scared of what they might think of me, I'm denying Christ. That's not going to lead you to hell, friends. We do it all the time. That's our frail human condition. Or when the Lord says to you, I want you to go and minister to this person, share the gospel with them. And we're like, no, 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 no. Those consequences might be too big for me to bear. And we don't do it. We're in a sense denying Christ. We do it all the time, friends. But Peter has this moment, this revelation. And now I want us to see how he responds because it's very different. For his response, we've got to go to John chapter 21. This is after the resurrection. Jesus has died on the cross. He's been buried. He's been resurrected. You know, it gets a bit weird here with John because, you know, he could have appeared to some disciples or other disciples, but this is what John says. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and he's on the shore of Galilee, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus, like, veils himself in the supernatural way. He's God. He can do that. And he says to them, children, do you have any fish? I think Jesus is being sarcastic. He's like, hey, you guys on the boat there, you're fishing. Do you have any fish? And they're like, no, we haven't caught any fish. They've been fishing the whole night. They've caught nothing. Seven disciples are on the boat. Seven disciples are fishing. Two weeks prior to this, these men were turning the world upside down for Jesus. They were ministering the gospel. They were seeing demons being cast out. They were seeing the dead raised. They were seeing miracles happen all over the place. But what are they doing now? They're fishing. They're fishing. And you know whose idea it was to go fishing? It was Peter. If you read in verse 21 of the same chapter, it says that Peter's idea was, let's go back to the boats. I want to go back to fishing. Why? Well, because Peter knows that he's messed up. He knows that he's disappointed God. He feels unworthy of the calling that God had placed on him. Nothing's changed in terms of the calling, but Peter feels like he can't do it anymore. This is not for me. I'm a failure. I'm lost. I'm no good. I'm a good for nothing. I'm too far from God. Nothing can be redeemed in me. Peter is having a pity party on the boat. He aborts his mission and he aborts his mandate. What's interesting there? 
is that Jesus never called these six men, including Peter 7, to be fishermen. He called them to be fishers of men. And it's evidenced by the fact that they caught nothing. You know, when we allow the enemy to convince us of how terrible we are, how bad we are, how unworthy we are, and we let go of the dreams and the visions and the calling that God has given us, you know what happens is we enter into seasons of unfruitfulness. We think that if we just avoid God and do whatever else we're going to do because he won't accept us, we'll be fine. But you will never have joy. He said to them, verse 6, cast the net on the, on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they're able to haul it in. And they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This makes no sense, just to be clear. It makes no logical sense. This is not a super tanker. You know, they got stuck in the Suez Canal that you might have fish on one side. But no, this is a little wooden boat. Okay? There's no reason why there's fish on one side and no fish on the other side. But what Jesus is doing is demonstrating who he is. I'm going to show you a miracle. You'll never deny me again. And it's almost like Jesus is saying this. If you want to be fruitful in your life, if you want to be bringing in the harvest that I've got in store for you, walking into the inheritance I have for you, then guess what? You need to be listening to me and following me. Don't give up. Keep following me. Keep listening to me. Keep going. Verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved, speaking about John, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. This is the response, friends. This is what we're looking for. Now, I can't prove this, but I want to tell you, it's conceivable that at this point in time, this is the first time Peter has seen Jesus since the Garden of Gethsemane. The last time he saw him, they were praying in the garden together. Then all of this crazy stuff happened. Judas betrays him, Peter denies him, Jesus gets beaten, he gets killed, and it's all crazy from that point onwards. Now, Peter sees Jesus, the man who he betrayed, not just any man, he realizes that this is God because there's a miracle here, and he's been resurrected from the dead. But you know what Peter does? His response blows me away. You see, when we're filled with shame, we run away, right? Peter's not filled with shame, he's filled with conviction. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter, convicts his heart. He realizes that he had messed up. But you know what that does? Is he starts to run towards Jesus. This is what repentance looks like. Remorse and repentance. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means to turn away from, to literally turn a 180, to go the opposite direction. Peter was headed away from his destiny, from his calling, and from who Jesus had called him to be. And he was headed away from God, but he realized the error of his ways, and he runs towards Jesus. And so remorse leads to death. Repentance always leads to life. Tyler, you can come up. But it's not just about the response. Yes, Peter responded correctly. Yes, Peter went back to Jesus. Yes, Peter did all the right things. And he was, you know, at that point in time, accepted by Jesus. But something else happens. And this is what I feel like the encouragement is for us today. I've taken a really long way to get to this. But this is what I feel like the Lord's saying to us. You see, everyone in this room, put up your hands. You all told me that at some point in your life, you have felt unworthy. You felt like you let God down. You disappointed God. Maybe you're in a situation or in a circumstance right now where you're not sure whether the dreams, the visions, the calling, the, the, the beautiful pictures that God once showed you will ever come to fruition. Not because it's impossible, but because you don't feel like, feel like you're the man or the woman for the job. That God clearly made a mistake. You know, David, when he's confronted by Nathan with his sin, he gets on the floor and he worships God. He says, Lord, restore in me clean hands and a pure heart. You see, when we allow Satan to fill us 
to make us feel ashamed, guilty, or unworthy, we will always believe that our season in God is over. For some of us, maybe that's a business dream. For others, maybe it's a church plant. For some, maybe it's a marriage, it's a relationship. Maybe it's, you know, some calling that you knew God had given you. Whatever it is, maybe it's to work into the nations, work with orphans, whatever that thing is. Now you're confronted with the reality of your unworthiness and you're saying, I cannot do that anymore. I'm not qualified for the job. I'm not ready for the job. God cannot use me. We can believe all of that. We can choose to live in that place and we can abort the things that God has given us. Or we can choose to do what Peter did. And we can remember that the God that we serve is not only a God who knows our weakness. Believe me, He knows you've messed up. But He's a God that redeems our weakness. John 21, and I'm going to close with this, is this beautiful picture of how God redeems our weaknesses. The text is really small there, just it's on purpose, just so you exercise your eyes. And when they finish breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. I love you. Jesus says to him, great, feed my lambs. He asks him again, Simon, son of Peter, son of John, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, great, tend my sheep. And then Jesus asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter gets a little bit frustrated at this point. He's like, of course I love you. You know everything, Jesus. You know that I love you. He says to him, feed my sheep. Now we read that, we think, well, what does this mean? Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus restores Peter's commission three times. Peter was not disqualified. Jesus could have said to him, you said you would never deny me, but you did. You failed me, Peter. In my darkest hour, he does. And he says, Peter, this is what you need to remember. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. Matthew 16, when we had the revelation of me, Peter, you knew that I was the son of God. I said that on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter, that's you. You're part of this destiny. You're part of this calling. And every single time Peter recommissions or Jesus recommissions Peter, he's saying, I've canceled out all the denials. Three denials are canceled out with three commissions. In other words, it is over. It is finished. It is forgotten. But Jesus says to Peter, get back on the wall. You have got a fight to fight, a kingdom to advance, a people to reach. And I'm broken when I think about this because we so often let go of this stuff. We lose sight of our calling, of the purposes of God in our lives because we're living in shame and guilt. And I feel like there's people here today that God wants to recommission. He wants to revive those dreams that you once had. He wants to remind you that you are more than able, that He is not a God who makes mistakes and He's called you by name and He loved you before the foundation of this world. And so if that's you here this morning, if you've given up on something that God has given you, if you believe it is impossible today, I want you to stand right where you are. I want you to stand up right now. I need you to be bold. I need you to stand. Because I feel like God wants to restore all that the enemy has stolen from you, taken from you. There are dreams that the Lord is waiting to be fulfilled in this room. There are nations to be reached from this room. There are lost people that you are going to impact from this room. But we can't do it in a place of shame and guilt and remorse and feeling unworthy. 
So I'm going to pray for us today. And I'm going to pray that God would recommission our hearts. And that not only would He recommission us, that He would release us for what He's got for us. Lord, I pray for every single person in this room that has stood up and declared that they have allowed dreams to be forgotten, futures to be sidelined, and they've aborted the things that you've called them to do because of their own shame, their own guilt, their own sense of disappointment and unworthiness. Lord, today, the question that you ask us is, do you love me? And I think every person that stands has made that declaration that they love you, Lord. Then this morning, Father, I pray that you would release in them this commission again. Bring those dreams back to life. Make them burn in their hearts again. And every time the enemy tries to pull them down and say, you're not good enough, Lord, remind them, Holy Spirit, tell them that they are more than enough because Christ in them is the hope of glory. And so, Lord, I trust you for vision, for future, for destiny, for every single brother and sister in this room. And I pray for our local church that you would continue to use us in a mighty way and send from us many people that will impact the nations in various ways, whether it's businesses, churches, whatever it is. Release them today, Lord. Commission them today. In Jesus' name I pray.